who the most impressive person you've ever met is. When I, when I opened up this morning's service with that, I could see a few wives nudging their husbands and so forth. I was thinking, oh, I kind of set that up, didn't I? But it was good for marriages. But I, I don't know who the most impressive person is that you have ever met. But one would have to be, in terms of um, just, just leaders, would be Chief Commissioner McMillar. He was an absolute legend in the Victoria Police Force. Um, I was kind of used to a workplace where the boss, the CEO, was, was just, you know, uh, given Australian egalitarian culture, just was the ridicule of the organisation. Um, we don't like our leaders very much. But Chief Commissioner McMillar, uh, there were, oh, I think, somewhere between seven and 8,000 Victoria Police in those days. It's many more now. Not once, not once in my four years with Victoria Police, did I ever hear a word against him? It's remarkable. Um, he was a legend. There was this, uh, back in the 70s, I think it was, there was this incident, maybe it was the 60s, called the Faraday kidnappings. It was a couple of um, um, uh, plasterers, actually, not to you know, bemoan the plastering trade. Ollie was once a plasterer, and now he's a plasterer. But, but, but anyway, a couple of plasterers um, kidnapped an entire, in, in the small town of Faraday, an entire um, school, which was, which was only, say, 12, 15 children, but nonetheless, it was, it was massive. And uh, they um, asked for a, a ransom. Victorian government decided, yes, we will pay the ransom. And then, most peculiar, um, the, the treasurer, a minister, politician, Lindsay Thompson, who would later become premier, he actually um, went in the car with the money. Um, an assistant commissioner was posing. I mean, that's pretty high up in the police force. An assistant commissioner was posing as his driver. And in the back seat, under a, under a blanket, with a pretty hefty shotgun, I believe, was Mick Miller, who would later on become the chief commissioner of police. I mean, he... He really was quite a legend. And so um, if you graduated from the police academy in sort of the top three on, on graduation day, you got to walk out the front and actually meet the chief commissioner and salute him and have a, have a little bit of a conversation. And usually it was around what would you like to do with your career and so forth. And so this was my big moment. And I, and I marched out and came to attention and, and there he stood larger than life. He was like, wow, this is Mick Miller. He had... Ep, you know, braid and epaulets or gold and badges and awards and everything. I mean, he was a hero. And there he stood before me. And so he asked his first question. And just as he asked his question, this gust of wind crossed the parade ground and I totally heard nothing. And I was thinking, oh, dang, this is my moment. I, uh, and so I was untrained for this. I was, I was prepped. It was, there was only a few things you could say to the chief commissioner. There was a very serious line of command within the police force. And, and I totally missed it. I didn't, uh, so I was, uh, I'm sort of leaned in. Sorry, sir, I didn't catch that. And I thought, I don't even know if you're supposed to say that. What's the protocol for when you can't actually hear the chief commissioner of police? And, and anyway, so he repeated the question. At that very moment, another gust of wind crossed the parade ground and carried with it his, his words. And seriously, this was starting to get embarrassing. You know, um, I, I still did not hear a word that he said. So I asked him another time, and he's kind of looking at me with this disappointing look, and I was thinking, yeah, I know, I'm just a great disappointment right now, and I just can't hear you. And so he asked a third time, 
another gust of wind just came across the parade ground. To this day, I've got no idea what it was that he was talking about. But we just seem to, you know, he's a very, on top of being a legend and a hero and so forth, he was a very gracious man and we just kind of smiled awkwardly and I just returned to my position, having missed, missed this great moment with a legend. I imagine that, that for Samuel, when he was to go out and, and anoint Israel's next king, and he met of Jesse's sons, he met Eliab, I imagine that it was that kind of, a, kind of response. He just saw him kind of standing tall and strong, and he thought, surely this is the next king of Israel. He'd been told to, despite the fact that Saul was still reigning, he was being told to go out and, with his anointing oil and anoint one of Jesse's sons. Now, of course, we know it would be David. David. But when he first met Eliab, I'm sure that he just looked at him and thought, what an impressive young man. This surely is to be the, the next king of Israel. And it is in that context that we read these words, and I'm sure you've heard them before, um, but God speaks to Samuel. He says, no, don't anoint him. And he says it very, very strongly. He says, man looks at the outer appearance, but God looks at the heart. You know those words? Have you heard those words before? Man looks at the outer appearance, but God looks at the heart. There's a sense in which that little verse, that word from God to Samuel, really summarizes our passage today. As you know, we're in a series in Mark. And if you turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12, we're going to just read a few verses. It's a caution um, by Jesus. And then an example that Jesus points out to his disciples to teach them this lesson. Man looks at the outer appearance, but God looks at the heart. Chapter 12, verse 38. Let's, let me read this for you. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses, and for a show, they make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. And Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Man looks at the outer appearance, but God looks at the heart. Outwardly, these scribes, teachers of the law, in their flowing robes, they looked good. Oh, they looked, they looked real good. Uh, they would often wear just white robes, just pure white, no, no color. That was for tuh, dressy, showy people, not them. Oh, no, they just wore pure white robes, often, often going all the way to the, to the ground. They, they loved their position in society. William Lane says that they were venerated with almost unbounded respect and awe. Their words were considered to possess almost sovereign authority. People 
when they saw them coming, rose respectfully. In fact, if you were, if you were a tradesperson, you were able to just continue to go about your trade because that was, that was also a respected duty. But if you weren't at work, you were expected to rise as the scribes walked past. They were given titles of deepest respect, such as father, rabbi, master. Um, if you were holding a feast or an important dinner and you really wanted everybody to know just, just how important your particular feast or dinner was, the chief ornament that you would have would be a scribe. You would have a scribe and you would seat them in the most important place. Often, they had precedence over the aged and also even parents. And then they lived on subsidies. And sometimes, some of them, would sponge off people of limited means. And it seems to be that that is what Jesus is warning or cautioning them about um, here in this passage. I guess, as always, we know that we don't behave like scribes. We, uh, we worship in a Baptist church. Eh? It's pretty casual, isn't it? Contemporary music, jeans, and so forth. Like, Are there any airs about us? And yet, isn't it very, very easy in the Christian life to, to slowly create uh, something of a, of, a, of a value system on what it means to be a good Christian, on what it means to be a good person? Sometimes we even use this odd term, a, a godly person. But as Ollie said before, Jesus even rebuked the rich man who called him that, calling attention to the fact that nobody is good but God, inference being... He spoke truer than he knew. But for any of us to take on that kind of a title, well, it might be, apart from Christ living within us, uh, a little arrogant. But don't we all sometimes get tempted to, to kind of feel an artificial goodness about our Christian behavior and our, our religious piety? Um, Brian and I have a little bit of an ongoing ongoing joke about this, we, we both love to open up the Bible app, um, version in the morning, and we will often get our cup of coffee, sit in bed, we open up our app. Now, it so happens that I seem to open it up a little bit more regularly, and it keeps statistics. Now, I don't know if you have this as well. Do you have this with your YouVersion app? If you open up that, that thing every day, you get marked on your performance. <laughs> and uh, if you get, you know, like seven days in a row, little, little uh, like ticker tapes, you know, confetti drops down and, and, and awards you, you know, for whoa, seven days in a row. I'm up to, um, actually, I think it's about 162. Uh, days in a row at the moment, and, and uh, Bron, yours is on, darling, what was it again? It's at seven, seven, which, is, which means that you are due for your little ticker tape parade. So it's, it's funny, isn't it? But we all have, do we not, in our, in our Christian lives, we, we have the little things that we kind of give ourselves a little quiet applause for, whatever it might be. That's kind of a little bit of a running, running joke that we, that we have. I'm probably actually due to skip a day just so I go back to zero and I'm brought back to uh, a little bit of true humility. But, but it's very, very easy to, to have a little scoring system for, for ourselves. And, and this is what Jesus says, don't do that. Man looks at the outer appearance. Don't start your own little scoring system because you start out by perhaps scoring other people, but be careful because the scorecards that you raise for other people are also the scorecards that you'll start to use for yourself eventually. 
and it's not a good grading system. It's not a good way to live. You become enslaved to your, to your own behavioral code. There seems to be a, a sense with the scribes in which the outward appearances suggested an inner devotion. Everyone just assumed because of the, the outward religious piety that this reflected, this was symbolic of something going on inside their heart, that this was symbolic of their devotion to God, and therefore it won public approval. Everybody was quite impressed with that. And it's very easy for us to do that as well, to put the, put the emphasis on Christian behavior rather than the heart of Christ inside each and every one of us. And sometimes it's a little bit hard to tell. Jesus said you can, you can tell a tree by its fruit. But if you're just looking at the outer appearance of the fruit, you might think that it's come from a different tree. Um, over the summer, we had a whole bunch of lemons um, inside on the bench, and they were obviously lemons because they were yellow. And I remember cutting, cutting one up, so we're going to put it in the water and water jug and just add a little bit of flavor to our tank water. And as I'm cutting through this yellow lemon, all of a sudden I'm noticing inside it's green. It's actually not a lemon, it's a lime. But it's a lime that had been sat on the bench long enough that it had turned yellow. So yes, you can tell a tree by its fruit, but you need to make sure that you are testing the fruit, not by its out of appearance, but what's actually on the inside. And Jesus says in this regard, we don't always get it right. Man tends to naturally look at the outer appearance, but God looks at the heart. And then this very little beautiful sacred moment all of a sudden opens up inside the temple. Jesus calls the disciples over and they sit down in a place where they can actually view people coming in and, and giving the offerings to the, to the temple. They sat down and, and they were actually watching the people putting money into the temple treasury. And apparently they noticed many rich people throwing in large amounts. Um, there were, I believe, about 13 sort of like trumpet-shaped sort of offering bowls that you could, you could come, like fluted-type things that you could come and put your money in. And, well, obviously, if they had observed that people were putting in large amounts, I don't know whether they were sort of, you know, kind of peeling off the notes like this or, or a big clutter of coins as they went into the flute. But however it was, it was noted that there were some wealthy people giving large amounts. And then in the midst of that, a poor widow, approaches, and maybe it was the ting-ting that gave it away. But Jesus noted that she only put in two small copper coins. Literally, these things were called lepta. They didn't even equate to the lowest common denominator of the Roman currency. They were a little small copper coin. In fact, lepta is where we get the English word leaf, light, thin, these were two small coins. If you related them to the you know, average day's salary, this represented about six minutes of the average day's salary. A couple of cents worth. That's it. Hardly anything at all. And yet Jesus calls attention to this, and he calls the disciples around him, and he says, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. Sometimes less is more. What made it more? 
Well, it seems that, again, man looks at the outer appearance, God looks at the heart. And relative to what this poor widow had, this represented everything to her. This represented everything, all she had to live on. I have had um, a number of moments, I guess, in my Christian walk where it feels a little bit like heaven has, has opened. I remember one, um, just sitting, sitting on my bed having my, my quiet time as a 17-year-old. Special moment. It felt like heaven just opened, and, and in that moment, I truly felt my father's approval. Um, another one... Uh, that I recall was as a young married couple sitting out on the back steps of a, a house that we were renting, the very first house that we moved into as a married couple. And again, it was one of those moments where it just felt like as I spent time with God, heaven opened. And again, I, I truly felt the Father's approval. Uh, another one I can think of was, um, well, more recently, it was, a, it was a little while ago, was there was a, a, young, um, a younger Aaron McKenzie and McKenzie family. We were in Kenya, actually um, uh, visiting a, a small church in a, in a slum. And as I sat in, in the front pew of that church on the Sunday, and that church doesn't exist anymore, it's all being bulldozed now, the whole slum, shortly after we were there. But as I sat on that pew, again, it was one of those moments. It felt like heaven opened. And in that moment... I felt the Father's approval. I think that's what was going on here. As this widow approached and as she dropped her two little copper coins, her offering in, I think it was one of those, those moments of very, very of true worship. It was a sweet moment where heaven opened and God's approval shone down. The outward appearance wasn't much. Two little coins. Ting, ting. Not much at all. And it hid the inner devotion of this widow. It didn't win much outward approval, but it certainly won God's approval. Because sitting just a few feet away was the Son of God with his disciples watching everything that took place in that temple that day. And he noticed what nobody else noticed. And he knew the inner heart of this poor widow. It was a moment of true worship. Symbolically, those two coins were everything to her. Absolutely everything. She placed these coins in the treasury. But as she did so, she was really placing her life in God's hands. It wasn't just an offering of two small copper coins. It was an offering of absolute trust and belief in her heavenly father. William Hendrickson said, she could have kept one. Nobody would have blamed her. These two coins represented everything she had. She could have kept one, 50% tithe. It's not bad, huh? She could have kept back one coin, but she didn't. She placed both of them 
in the treasury offering. She gave both. In fact, knowing that God would not fail her, she sacrificed everything. These two coins represented all she had to live on. It was a moment of true worship. And the Son of God was watching. And in that moment, it was like heaven opened. And he expressed to the disciples the Father's pleasure, the Father's approval on this poor widow. It was something that Jesus himself had experienced. Do you remember at his baptism? As he rose up out of the water, heaven was torn open, and a voice from heaven, his father, said, This is my son with whom I am well pleased. That moment of obedience, that moment of true worship by the Son of God to satisfy the Father of God, his heavenly Father, rather, that moment was true worship. It was a beautiful moment. Heaven was torn open, and the pleasure of heaven was expressed. Jesus heard his father's approval. And the Son of God now reflects this to the disciples as well. He sees what the widow has done. He sees the offering that it is. She has given everything. She has given her all. And in that moment, it is like heaven is torn open. And Jesus, now reflecting the heart of the Father, speaks it to the disciples and says, this is a beautiful thing that this woman has done. She's given her everything. She was receiving heaven's approval. And it would be recorded for all time. Mark and Luke capture this moment. We know the story often, don't we, as the widow's might. Little did she know that day, perhaps with just a, a tad of embarrassment, she would have liked, you know, perhaps more noise than a ting, ting. She would have liked, a, you know, some sort of just, you know, all these coins dropping into it like we might do when we go to the bank and exchange all of the coins and we kind of get it counted. And She probably would have loved that, but no, it's a ting, ting. That's it. That's all she had. But that moment of true worship will be captured forever, and here it is in Scripture for us as an example today. The place of complete surrender, it's a sweet, sweet place. And when there's no one else, no one else that sees, it makes it even sweeter. On this occasion, God saw, and she received the applause of heaven. As a 17-year-old sitting, sitting on my bed, I, I had just arrived at a decision I was going to stop saying amen. You see, I'd probably spent about 30 minutes in my morning devotion before I took off to work. And, and I had this funny encounter with God where I said, amen. And I felt like God was saying, that's it, Stuart. And I, I remember pausing, thinking, um, like 30 minutes is good. Like, that's a good innings. Do you want an hour, Lord? I could get up earlier, but 30 minutes, that's kind of, that's up there. But I remember, as it were, this conversation going on between God and myself. Is, is, is that it? Are we done? 
and feeling like my amen seemed to compartmentalize my Christian life, like this was my morning devotion, done. Now I'm off to live my life. And the challenge to me as a 17-year-old was, is that it, Stuart? Are we done? Because I wouldn't mind being a part of the rest of your day. And this was a new thought. I hadn't seen a church stage with the word abide there before. I didn't, I didn't know what a day-to-day, moment-by-moment kind of abiding relationship would look like. I, I kind of had compartmentalized things. I, you start the day with a prayer and you finish the day with a prayer. And I guess in between, you hope all goes well, right? But there, God was just challenging the very foundations of my faith and saying, well, actually, I kind of I like to be a part of the rest of the day too. And I... I said, okay, Lord, amen. And oh, there I did it again. Because amen was like a full stop. It was kind of like punctuating my Christian life. It was kind of like a, a period that kind of said, okay, now next sentence, the rest of my day. So I sat on my bed saying, well, Lord, I, okay, uh, let's do this. No amen. I so much wanted to say amen. But, but I was trying to stop myself from saying amen. And And I said, you can be a part of my whole day. I just don't know how that works quite yet, God. But I'm open. And I felt in that moment, it was like heaven heaven opened. and, And I was experiencing the approval of my heavenly father. Sitting out on the back steps of our Lorimer Street home, which we were renting, we had just done the math. And I'm no accountant. But we were trying to please everybody in our life and, and all those who said, before you go off to Bible college and before you go and serve, serve God in some foreign country somewhere, before you do all of that, you really should you know, be good stewards and good Christians and you should kind of put some money down on a, on a block of land and you should buy a house because you don't want to be dependent upon other people and, and so forth. And we'd been listening to all these voices and so we'd gone and we'd put a deposit on a block of land right next to our very best friends. It was going to be cool. There in a court, the name of which I can't remember, somewhere in Epping, we'd, we'd actually put a deposit down on a block of land and I sat down on the back steps and I did the math and I thought... It'll be ages before we've paid this off, ages before we're debt-free and we could actually go to Bible college. There was no such thing as study in those days. So, so the only way to do this would be to defer Bible college and defer going overseas, and that's just disobedience. And as I was reading through Matthew 6, I, I kind of thought, well, looks, looks like here, God, your promise is that just like you feed the sparrows, you will feed us. Just like you clove the lilies of the field, you'll clove us. You'll look after everything. I guess we don't need the block of land. And I remember coming in to talk to Brian, and I said, I think to go ahead with the purchase of this block of land is disobedience to God. And she agreed. It was kind of like this weight lifted off our shoulders, and it was, it was like this beautiful moment where heaven opened, and I just... I just felt the approval of my heavenly father. Sitting in that front pew in that church in, in Kenya, there was a young, I think he was maybe Kamal, 14 years of age, and he was a young adult. And he was kind of like the oldest young adult in, in that little 
church youth group in this slum in Kenya. He was perhaps kind of the shining light, the, the one young man that you really felt God's hand was upon him and he had the, he had the power to really influence other kids in the slum. And, and I'd been taken for a trip with a borrowed pair of gumboots through the slush and the mud to, to visit his, his mother who was sick. Um, both he and his mother uh, were HIV positive and... You know, I guess life didn't look really, really optimistic for young Kamal. But right now, God had his hand upon that young man, and I just sat there at the front of the church, and I had this inner prompting to give him my Bible. Now, this was, this was my burgundy, leather-bound, not even bonded leather. This was real leather, like you could smell the cow. Um, it had been all around the world with me and in, in it I had all of these post-its, all of my sermons in there. Sentimentally, this meant a lot to me. And I sort of thought, nah, <laughs> that's, that's Western guilt speaking as I sit in the front pew here. That's just kind of, you know, Stuart, cathartic release. You've got to do something. You'll feel better. No, kind of, I, and I pushed the thought away again and again and again till I couldn't push it away anymore. And I thought, God, you want to take this up a notch, don't you? This is the written word, but you want me to be obedient to the living word. You want me not to just be a, a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word. And what good is it to have this Bible here and to not listen to the voice of the God who is in every single page of it? And so I just started kind of tearing out the little posted notes and so forth and saying my farewell <laughs> to my Bible. Sentimentally, it meant so much to me. And I sort of thought, well, you know, this is, maybe Kamal already has a Bible, and this is really arrogant. You know, oh, have my Bible. It's better than yours, you know. And I was still wrestling inwardly. But as he, as he came out um, with the choir to sing us a song towards the end, I just noticed, no, he didn't have a Bible. And that was my last little fleece <laughs> of whether I was hearing from God or not. And I remember giving him giving him that Bible, and when I did, I knew, yep, I've heard the voice of God. I'm being obedient to the command of God. This is what I was supposed to do. And in that moment, again, just releasing and surrendering something that was precious to me, I felt like heaven opened, and I felt like I was hearing the approval of my Father. These are moments of true worship. There are, there are others I could share with you, and, and you have probably had these experiences as well. It's when symbolically we give something to God which is precious to us, something to God which means everything to us for the right reasons or the wrong reasons. These are moments of true worship. That's what was happening in the temple that day. That's what happened when that, that widow put in her two coins, which was everything to her, all she had to live on, placing her total trust in her heavenly father. It was a sweet moment, true worship, a moment where heaven opened and she was able to have that communion with God that only comes in a place of surrender. 
Little did she know the Son of God sitting off to the side would tell the disciples of the pleasure of heaven that was upon her in that moment. It was not unnoticed. Jesus saw it, and he still sees it today. Those moments where we listen to a prompting from God, when we hear him say, would you give that up for me? Would you give that to me? All of it, all of it. It could be a relationship that's precious to us. It could be a career aspiration. It could be our studies. It could be our future. It could be our marital status. It could be our finances. It could be so many different things. It's different for each and every one of us. But it's something that God taps you on the shoulder and says, would you please give that to me? All of it, everything that you have. And those moments of surrender, when we drop it all, as an offering before him, those are precious moments. That's true worship. That's when heaven opens. That's when we hear our Father's approval. In some ways, they're symbols. They symbolize those outward little things. They symbolize something that's going on inside each of our hearts. Symbolizes that transaction that's going on, that thing that it is that we are, we are surrendering to God. And we're going to finish this evening not by thinking about the symbols that, that you might have that represents your devotion to God, not your gift to him, but we're actually going to finish tonight with two different symbols. The bread and the wine symbolize God's gift to us. They symbolize the fact that he has given us everything. We read in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? These two symbols, as you hold them, the bread and the wine, they remind you that, yes, your heavenly Father has given up his son, but along with giving up his son, will he not give you all things? Can you outgive God? Is there anything that he asks of you that he hasn't already given? These two symbols are a reminder of his gift to us. They're a reminder of his absolute love for us and that he has held nothing back from you. You can trust him with everything. You can trust him with your all. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, tonight we just want to thank you for, again, this story. It's, it's familiar, but it's rich with significance for us. Again, we see the example of the, the poor widow who gave her everything. She trusted you, knowing that you would also give to her all things. And in that moment, she didn't know that watching her was the very Son of God. Your gift and your assurance that in every way you had her covered. 
Father, I thank you that tonight, as we hold these symbols shortly, the bread and the wine, we are holding two reminders that you have given everything for us. You have given us your son, Jesus, and you have given us new life. As your son shed his blood and his body was broken, and you said that is sufficient for covering all sin, we have the wonderful assurance that we have been brought close to you once more. Our every sin is covered over and atoned for. We have complete fellowship with the living God once more. And we thank you for that. Thank you for the reminder that you have given us everything. And tonight too, we don't want to miss this opportunity to give everything back to you as well. If there is something that, that any of us have been prompted of tonight that we that we might be holding back from you that might need to be surrendered father we pray that that you would so prompt us would we come and gladly give you everything as only you deserve free us up father from the things that enslave There is nothing that we give that hasn't already been given to us. Tonight, Lord, we pray that heaven would open and we would, we would hear the affection of our heavenly Father. We would hear your approval, the applause of one, the only applause that we seek. Let it be, Jesus.